You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello, fellow humans, and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode number fifty-one. My name is Steve, and I will be your host on this magical mystery tour. Today is Friday, February 1st, 2019, and I think we should have a little bit of fun. Hey everybody, how's it going? It has been two weeks, I think, since the last podcast. We are working on producing them more regularly, and hopefully we will satisfy your every podcast need and desire. Today, I have... uh, a special guest, uh, one Peter Five contributor and recent Catholic convert, Stephanie Nicholas. Let me pause to take a sip of my delicious beverage. <sighs> Refreshing. And um, I don't know. It's uh, I think it's it's Friday. Let's lighten up. Let's have a little bit of fun. I was going to do a monologue. I don't know if you really want to hear a monologue from me. We've got an interview that's uh, about an hour long, so I don't really want to use up all your time um, talking about things like um, the release of new credibly accused priest abuser lists. Okay, just a little monologue. There's... A new report that came out yesterday in Texas, um, another list of credibly accused priest priests. Uh, the list is said to go back about 70 years in time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, here are my thoughts on this. These lists are going to keep coming out. They need to keep coming out uh, in one respect. Um, The church hasn't done a good enough job policing itself and now state governments and the federal government are investigating all these claims of sex abuse. But the problem is that these things become a clearinghouse of everything, right? So what you wind up with is um, priests who are, you know, falsely accused getting rolled up in the list with uh, those who are actually legitimately legitimately guilty. Uh, I noticed that there was a priest on the Pennsylvania grand jury report um, who I had known growing up. um, And I knew him because of his orthodoxy. He came into a parish that looked, I mean, like a Baptist church. It was iconoclastic. It was so plain. And he built a high altar and put in a communion rail and added Latin to the mass. And I mean, he didn't do the traditional mass, but He did a lot of things that really changed the entire aesthetic of the parish and he revitalized it. I mean, there were people who were upset and they left, but there were more people, you know, who came and stayed. And then I remember hearing, um, this wasn't my parish. It was a parish of some of my family members that I would visit on occasion. And, um, I remember hearing at some point that he'd been accused of some sort of impropriety. And that as time went on, you know, he was sent to a facility and they tried to strip him of his priesthood. And there were these nuns there who thought women should be priests and he wasn't allowed to wear his clerics or to offer mass and all this stuff. And he was there for like a year. And he said that they had tried to strip him of his priesthood. And then um, 
you know, he's later brought back into circulation, but not given a parish because he'd been accused. And then at some point along the way, so the story I was told through the grapevine was that he had been exonerated of the charges and that in fact, um, the people who had made the charges had kind of admit that they had sort of coached their son into claiming that something had happened that hadn't happened and that they had an animosity toward the priest and you know, whatever. The fact was the priest never was the same again. He was never given a parish of his own. Uh, he was given permission to go spend time uh, in another diocese where he was at least able to sort of assist at different things because at home he was persona non grata. And that was kind of the last thing I'd ever heard. You know, he showed up at one point um, and was doing some choir work because he was really gifted with music, sacred music. And then I just never saw him again, never thought of him again. And then last year I heard that he had died, I think cancer, and he was in his 50s. So pretty young. And then the Pennsylvania grand jury report comes out. He's in there. There are more accusations. The charges were dropped. There's no sense of closure about why were they dropped? Were they false? Were they not? I don't know. I don't know. So I have a priest who I saw have a very positive impact on my family, on my extended family. He got a lot of my cousins serving at the altar. Um, and they all became altar boys because of him, because he was one of these guys that's like, get on a cassock and surplus and everybody let's serve, you know, and 30 boys are up there on the altar. So a lot of my extended family members grew closer to their faith through that experience. Um, but I read this report and without any distinctions, what I'm left with is doubt in my mind about this priest. The problem with this kind of thing is you don't know the truth. And in many cases, the guys whose names are being released, they're already dead. They're gone and they can't defend themselves. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have an impact on people's lives, that they didn't have parishioners who maybe really loved them or, or found that they were, you know, profoundly good men in some cases. And those people read these lists and they find out and, and they're traumatized and scandalized by this. And I don't know. So this clearinghouse approach to allegations concerns me. Um, it does need to happen, I think, because, you know, it wasn't being done voluntarily. And that's a problem. And, you know, if it had been done correctly in the first place, maybe it wouldn't have happened this way. But now it's all just going to come out. And it's going to be ugly. The flip side of this is that I have a friend who um, is an attorney by trade. And um, he has begun helping priests who are falsely accused. And he has advised them um, that if they are falsely accused, they can't just take it on the chin, that they actually have to fight back, that they have to file countersuits for libel and slander, that they need police reports, that they need things on the record demonstrating that someone accused them falsely and that they, they have to have evidence in a file that can clear their good name. Because as he tells them, your bishop is not your friend when this happens. Your bishop is going to cover his own butt and he's not going to protect you. And so if you are legitimately falsely accused, you don't get to turn the other cheek or they will come back when all this stuff comes out and they'll destroy you because they'll just throw you under the bus. It doesn't matter. And there was actually an incident um, 
with a priest that he was working with. Um, and they had to go to, uh, you know, a, a particular office building to file some paperwork. I don't know the details and it doesn't matter. I don't want to identify the priest or the guy that I'm talking about anyway. Um, but as they're walking through the main floor lobby of the building, my friend stops to go grab something. Um, and so the priest is walking alone and he's wearing his clerics and he's walking down the hall and these guys in nice suits, probably attorneys of some sort coming the other way, look at him. And one of them says, Oh great. Just what we need more child molesters in the building. Now they don't know anything about this priest. And in fact, the priest is there because you know, he's been falsely accused and he would like to clear his good name so that he can continue doing the work that God called him to do. Now, my friend um, related this story to me uh, for two reasons. One was to just show that this is the the climate of um, of the conversation around the priesthood and around the Catholic Church right now. This is the way people look at things, and it's it's disgracing all all of us, all the priests, all the faithful who love the priests. Everybody, everybody gets lumped in. But my friend, being who he was. They all wind up on the same elevator, the priest, my friend, um, you know, these guys in the suits. And um, my friend and the priest needed to go to like the third floor. So they hit the button and and my friend asks um, the guys who don't know that he's with the priest, yeah, what floor do you need? And they needed, I don't know, like the 40th floor. So of course he hit every button on the way down. (laughs) And he said, oh, sorry, I just can't help myself. I have to touch buttons when I see them. And they got off on the third floor and uh, and laughed for a very long time as they heard the elevator ding on every floor on the way up. It wasn't much, it wasn't much in the way of retribution, but it was highly amusing to them at the moment and it broke the tension. But I think that it's, um, I, I don't know. Part of me wants to be on board with sort of the lynch mob mentality of it's all got to come out and the church didn't do it. And so the state has to, and you know, giddy up, let's get them. But part of me knows that this is, it's just going to be a, a, a means and a mechanism for persecution of clerics, of Catholics, of everything that we believe in and care about. And I think that when the dust settles, we're all going to be maybe, a lot. Um, I, don't, I think we're going to have some regrets about being so eager uh, for this to happen. It's a chastisement, and it's it's not going to be pretty. Um. So today, it's interesting because I'll be inter- interviewing a guest. Um, who I believe I may have did I mention her already? Uh, I have a terrible memory, so. I will be interviewing Stephanie Nicholas, who is um, one of our new featured and regular contributors here at 1 Peter 5. She's also a recent convert to the Catholic faith uh, as of last year. And she came into the church somewhat miraculously. Uh, I had first met her online uh, because she was writing conservative political commentary, uh, anti-jihadi stuff. And I had actually kind of invited her to consider Catholicism because it was compatible um, with her worldview. And she flatly said, not interested. 
And then a few months later, she contacted me and said, hey, I'm, I'm coming into the church. So you might want to know. Um, so her story is really interesting. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, but I think one of the biggest ones is she chose to become a Catholic at this moment in time when being a Catholic is harder, you know, in many respects than it's ever been socially speaking. I mean, it's obviously we don't live yet in an age of martyrdom where our faith means that we're going to be fed to the lions, but you know, socially speaking, um, spiritually speaking, it's very difficult for a lot of people to keep their faith in the church and, those converts who are coming into the church right now, I I think we need to learn everything we can from them about why uh, they were drawn to Catholicism at this moment of intense crisis. They have a lot to offer us. And I, I just, I don't know. It was a great interview. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and cut right to it here in a second because I don't want to take up any more of your time. So my little monologue, little one, is done. And uh, we'll be back with Stephanie Nicholas in just a minute. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. Joining me now is 1 Peter 5 contributor Stephanie Nicholas, a self-identified millennial conservative writer who recently joined the Catholic Church in the middle of what is arguably her worst crisis, not Stephanie's, the church's, in history. Stephanie, who has confronted Islamic ideology online for years now, is, as you might have guessed, a rather fearless young woman, and I am happy to count her among our regular contributors. Stephanie, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we finally get to do this after talking about it like six months ago. It's been in the works for a long time. <laughs> it, it actually has. This is very well planned. Like considering how easily, you know, this has uh, finally come together, it's like it should have happened sooner. <laughs> kind of. Well, you did move. I, several times. Yeah, that, that's a very good excuse. <laughs> All right. So I want to, you know, get right to the big stuff. And no, actually I don't. We can talk about your conversion in a little bit because I think it's a cool story. But... I would like the audience to learn a little bit more about you. So would you mind giving us a little bit of your background? Where are you from? How'd you grow up? What were your influences? You know, kind of set the stage for this transition that's happened in the last year. <laughs> set the stage for the crazy thing that hit me in the face out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah, I am from Ontario, Canada. I have lived here most of my life. Um, I grew up in a converted one-room schoolhouse. I have a mom, a dad, and two younger sisters. And I would say that... I have always been very interested in the sort of things that would, would have led me to become interested in Catholicism. I really grew up talking about politics and religion and just, you know, culture. And my dad and I were always kind of best friends, still are. He's, he's Greek Orthodox, so pray for him. <laughs> but yeah, I think I just, I always really enjoyed things like reading, writing, having discussions from a very young age. And now I get to, now I get to do it all the time. It's my job. It's amazing. That is awesome. So I first encountered you online and I'm trying to remember exactly how it happened. I know I've been trying to piece this back together. I'm doing a little bit of forensic uh, analysis here. Oh, no. It was early 2017. I know that. Oh, <laughs> you were, Are you reading 
tweets. No, no. I mean, I went, I went, to, <laughs> I went to Twitter advanced search to try to find this out. So early 2017, you were a conservative writer. You're doing the kind of anti-Islamic polemics on Twitter that very few people have the courage uh, or honesty to do. Let's start there. How did you get into doing that? Because I don't actually know the backstory on that. Yeah, I think you followed me kind of in the midst of it. Um, I started, so as I said, I've always been interested in, in politics, right? And I always consider politics to be a very a broad thing. You know, I kind of, anything that kind of falls under our, our kind of, I would say kind of civilizational politics were what interested me most, not so much the horse race stuff. But in late 2016, it was kind of around the time of the Trump hysteria, right? When Trump was being elected. And I just, I just found the discourse uniquely interesting at that point. And since I had always enjoyed talking about these things, and I had been tweeting a little bit, I think I had like, you know, a thousand followers or whatever. And I decided that, you know, I should write about this. So I started reaching out to these like really tiny independent news websites being like, hey, like, can I write a guest article? Um, and my first writing job, um, I think I got paid about $30 a month. Uh, <laughs> I wrote probably, you know, four or five articles a week. And uh, I did a lot of kind of reporting. And, and, you know, I was kind of in that, in that kind of like, I don't know how to describe this, like Paul Joseph Watson, alternative media yeah, sort of yeah. world, if that makes sense. You know, those kind of guys, like, like not kind quite of alt right, less but, but crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like on that part of the spectrum. <laughs> like a lot, like, like everyone would be ranting about like Syria, like, like that, that kind of group. Right, um, right. And yeah, so I started doing that. And from there, my following has started, sort of started to grow. And eventually I got a, a better writing job. Um, and I, I guess I, it was at that point when I started to write things that were a little more in my kind of personal essay style that I still still kind of carry today. Like it was less straight reporting and more just talking about, like I would really relate a lot of, you know, I'd, I'd have something happen in my life and I would relate it to something really broad. And I don't know, from there, I just, I really, I found that the, the topic of Islam extremely interesting because I had a brief phase when I, when I was younger and dumber where I, I was really I found, I found it, it, I found Islam to be exotic and cool. And I was living in Toronto at the time briefly. And, you know, I went to a mosque and I, you know, I, I, I think I even wore a hijab in public a couple of times. And, you know, I never really, you know, believed it. Right. Like, so hold on, clearly, hold on, hold on. So at this time of your life, um, you were, not really religious in any way. So this was appealing to you on what level? Well, yeah. So first of all, anything talking about religious history is extremely complicated. Like, you know, if I just go into not just how I got into the kind of Islam stuff that led to my conversion, there was some other religious stuff that took place, like, you know, spending time in kind of Protestantism and then becoming very, very skeptical and pretty like almost an atheist because of the kind of non-denominational Protestant world. Mm -hmm. But at the point, at the point when I was in Toronto and I was exploring Islam, it was, it was honestly more than anything that there was this, I don't know, there was kind of, I don't know if you can even call it an aesthetic appeal, but I, I think it was just a, it was different, right? And maybe there was a small part of me that saw it as something that was a little bit more um, self-assured than a lot of the things that, that I saw from, from Christians and those of other religions. Like they were very adamant, like, this is the truth. You need to be part of this. Yeah, it was Nothing a certainty. It was a certainty. Yeah, there's a certainty. Yeah. And, I, and I've always said that in terms of, you know, how we evangelize as Catholics, that we need to have that certainty. People are crying for truth. And I, so as much as, as much as I will, you know, kind of demean myself and that I totally went after the Islam thing, it's like, oh, I'm so, I think I had a Tumblr blog about it. Like, it was just so cringy. I hope no one ever finds that. But, you know, and I, I think there's a photo of me in a hijab somewhere on the internet. Congrats. Um, but scavenger hunt, everybody. Yeah, Let's yeah, go look yeah, for yeah, that so picture of Stephanie. Fortune can find anything. Um, I think that I had a 
even though I did have those really stupid superficial reasons, I think there was a part of me that I, I've always loved truth. You know, that was something that has, is, you know, especially because of my dad's influence really was something that I believed in very strongly from my earliest memories. I've just always been really passionate about it. So I think that that self-assuredness kind of, um, it appealed to me, but it didn't take me long to, first of all, to kind of just become disillusioned for kind of other reasons. You know, I, I moved back, back to the area I live now for, unrelated reasons and it's not like I could really continue it and it was kind of based off a relationship I was in at the time he wasn't Muslim but he was very you know you know in favor of it um but I think that it kind of it lost that luster and then I started um I started looking into what their actual claims were you know a little deeper than what they told me at, at the mosque right and I really was troubled by a lot of what I found when I actually kind of read um, kind of more of the source documents, right? The Quran and read about who Muhammad actually was, but it kind of it kind of took a back burner. I think I think a lot of people look at it and they go, "Oh, I, I you know I I started having issues with Islam around the time of the World Trade Center attacks." And for me, it took <laughs> several years later than that. But it wasn't until I was this was when I was still at my first writing job, and I, I remember reading about um, this bill in Ontario um, called um, it was a motion actually M one hundred three which basically was a kind of set of government guidelines to kind of, I don't know, I think their end goal was basically to criminalize Islamophobia and not, you know, not anti-Muslim hatred or bigotry, but to criminalize Islamophobia as such, like to basically to make, you know, criticism of Islam to be, to fall under a sort of, you know, anti-discrimination law. Right, because I mean, that's how we define Islamophobia, right? Is just anything yeah. that you say about anything Islam that's, that's negative, even things, in Islam. Right? Yeah, because that means yes. that I'm irrationally afraid of Islam. Well, that, well, yeah, the term itself is, is very silly for other reasons, right? That, yeah, people should be a little scared of Islam. But, um, but you know, it, it's, it's conflated with anti-Islamic hatred. And it's been a while since I've even thought of this bill. But I, I remember at the time that just something, something about this and about the woman who's pushing it, it was an um, Ontario Liberal MP named Eva Khalid. And she was, she was the one agitating for it. And I decided, you know what, I feel like if I look into this woman, I'll, I'll find something. And I did. I found a lot of very disturbing ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, especially um, her father. And I, I wrote an article about it. And this article ended up kind of blowing up. It got shared by some pretty major people like Paul Joseph Watson and Stephen Crowder and those sorts of guys. And it kind of went off and people were like thousands of people were um, another part of this as well is that she was the president of the York University in Toronto, major um, Canadian university their um, Islam, uh, Muslim Students Association. And I found pure like factual evidence that in 2014 at the Islamic Week thing, you know, put on by the university, that they were handing out uh, literature that involved, you know, basically apologetics for honor killings and wife beating. So this was pretty disturbing. That's and people, nice. That's, yeah, it's right. yeah. And people were, people were tweeting the university and, you know, tweeting her campaign and call and be a, a lot of people were saying like, why are you, are you going to condemn this? Like, of course we, she was president in 2007. So of course, factually speaking, I don't know what they were doing in 2007. Somehow, you know, call me skeptical, but I think they probably were doing something similar in 2007 than they were in 2014. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's just a disturbing, uh, it's just, it was just a disturbing thing to me. And that really was where it took off as a passion, right? I just, I was like, I want to learn about this. I want to learn everything I can. So during this, this next kind of year, I was writing on all kinds of stuff. I think I, that's know, a I, theme with you. Like, there's, <laughs> a, there's a triggering event. Funny. There's a triggering event. And then it's Stephanie wants to learn everything she can about this topic. And she, that does. is absolutely true. It's yeah. true. And maybe it's, and I will never run out of things to learn about Catholicism, which is great. And it's a lot more pleasant than learning about Islam every day. So actually, so let me transition here because I think this is, I mean, this is where you were. Did I cut you off before you hit the, the denouement of your story? Because I don't think I did. 
No, no, no. That was I was trying to make it a short version. There's, there's so many threads to my life. God works in he deep ways. Right straight with crooked lines, right? So, but this is where I encountered you, right? Is I see you online and I don't know, somebody retweeted you. I don't know if it was Robert Spencer. I don't know who it was. Somebody that I followed retweeted something you wrote. And I was like, dang, there's some young woman out there who's actually doing this. Like nobody talks about this stuff. We, 1P5 did a series on Islam very early on. Um, you know, we, we found it in 2014. And I think it was the first or second day we actually had a piece called The Dialogue Delusion about Islam. And it was written by uh, Andrew Bizad, who's an Islamic scholar. He's fluent in Arabic. He's practically memorized the Quran and the Hadith and everything. Um, and he wrote a series of articles for us. And, and he talked about when he was doing Islamic studies, I forget, uh, somewhere in New England, I forget what school he went to. You know, the first day he had this Islamic student tell him, you know, that he deserved death and all this kind of stuff. And he was like, whoa, you know. And, and so he kind of really dove in because it was like, you know, this is, I was just studying this and now this has become something that's really worth my attention. So we started doing that very early on. And so I see you talking about this stuff and I'm like, you know, common ground, right? So I started trying to get you, as I recall, to look at the Catholic perspective on this. And I sent you some of his articles and I was like, hey, take a look because there's actually- a, I think I read them and enjoyed them at the time. Yeah, there's a history of the church looking at, at Islam as the danger and the threat that it is. And I don't think most people recognize in 2018, 2017, 2019, that, um, that the history of Christianity is actually very antithetical to Islam. And there's a lot of solid Christian thought on, hey, this is a danger to the entire way of life in Western civilization. And so that was kind of where I think we started to interact. But then in November of 2017, Twitter advanced search, I went back and looked. You tweeted. This is the best. You tweeted, quote, you ready? No. You tweeted, quote, <laughs> I am not Catholic. In fact, I consider Catholicism to be false, end quote. And you took a lot of flack for it. And you got pretty irritated about, about the flack you were taking for it. And Somehow I got sucked into the conversation because I didn't see the original tweet and people were like, why are you giving this you know, chick respect because she's saying this and that? And I was like, she's not Catholic. Do you really expect her to respect sure. Catholic faith? Like there's, you know, there's something. Yeah, I was honest about it. I just, I didn't believe it's true. So there yeah. you go. If you don't you believe know? it's true, you're <laughs> not going to think yeah. that. That's, you know, you don't just condemn somebody for that. In my opinion, that's not how evangelization works. So anyway, we kind of kept up our rapport and our dialogue, but there wasn't a lot of interaction. And then what is it like, I don't know, two, three months later, it was February of 2018. I get a private message from you and <laughs> all you say is this, you're like, so I'm becoming Catholic. Just, I thought, think I just guess- thought you might appreciate that. And, and, and that was pretty, no, actually, no, there was one more. You said, if you had told me a month ago, I'd be doing this. I would have told you, you need to stop drinking at 3 PM. <laughs> So how did this happen? I mean, I know it's a long and convoluted story, but what changes from November 2017 to February 2018? It's drastic. And then you've got this confidence and you're on fire. How can you explain this? Well, part of it is unexplainable, I think. And God's, you know, role in my life is is, is very clear. You know, grace is real. <laughs> you know, for anybody that's skeptical, I've, I've, I've lived it in a radical way. And to look back on who I was, it, it, we're almost basically almost a year ago to that point right now. And it, it's just astonishing to me to think how much more, how much differently I think and how yeah. I, how I live a totally different life. But yeah. So I, at this time, I think, so there was, 
so, you know, so as you said, in, in November 2017, I was still convinced that Catholicism was false, right? And but I had never really looked into it. You know, I, I kind of thought it was false in the kind of in a broader sense, because at this point, I had actually considered, um, I had considered Orthodox Judaism before becoming Catholic. So I was very anti-Islam, obviously. So that was never an mm-hmm. option. And I, for anyone who doesn't know this, I talk, I say it all the time. Like, hi, I'm Stephanie. I was Greek Orthodox, but I was, I was baptized and kind of catechized in the Greek Orthodox Church. My dad is, you know, very, very, very Greek Orthodox. And when did so you, I had. When did you kind of part ways with Orthodoxy? Yeah, okay, so yeah, when I was about, so I, so I went as a child. You know, I went to went to the Divine Liturgy every week, and I, um, I never really. I don't know. I, I just feel like, obviously, I, you know, I received the sacraments and all these things, but I never really had a, a deep connection. I think there, there was a part of me that, that wanted to at various times and it would kind of, you know, I want more. And it was, um, you know, there's a, I think, I think for me, the biggest, the biggest thing was that we went from a parish that was very, uh, you know, kind of more mixed ethnicity and, you know, less, uh, less ghettoized, I would say, even though it was really tiny and literally in the basement of an Anglican church, like this like windowless room. And when you, <laughs> you say, get, when you say ghettoized though, because I mean, for traditional Catholics, ghettoized literally <laughs> yeah, means in the ghetto because all of our parishes are in the worst parts of town. And, but you mean ethnically, right? Yeah. I meant, yeah. Ethnically, get, ethnically ghettoized. I, so, you know, we started going to the, the Greek parish closer to home and I'm half Greek, you know, and I, love Greek people and it's not, it's nothing against it, but there was a very strong, you know, there's a strong kind of national identity that I just never fit in with. You know, I was never quite Greek enough. You know, my, my mother isn't Greek. My dad doesn't speak Greek. You know, we don't have a big family. Like, it's just, we never really fit in. You don't use a bottle of Windex to solve all your problems. I don't, not yet. Give me 30 years. Put, put some Windex. I, I, just put, put some Windex. That movie is actually like not that far off, especially like the, the clothing choices of <laughs> <laughs> the Greek, Greek women at a church, at a Greek Orthodox church. But yeah, they might, I mean, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself and maybe my mother and sisters. I think my dad is a little more involved, but you know, there was always this, this disconnect in my family. And I, and I think that was part of it. And then as I became a teenager, I started going to a um, non-denominational Protestant youth group once a week. What age was that? I'm sorry, what age? Um, probably mm, 14, 15, okay. I say. Yeah, and I, and I started I started going there, and I was pretty involved with that for most of my teen years. And I think that, you know, at the time, my parents kind of saw it as, okay, you know, she's at least around people that, you know, and, and you know, it's their credit. Like, the, the woman who was my youth group leader, I was friends with her daughter for, for you know, many years after that, and they... You know, at least you know they were very serious, right? Very serious Christians about the, what they had. Yeah, right? they're very so sincere. I, mean, I was learning times, some yeah. very good. I was learning good moral things there, but there was a an anti intellectualism that really bothered me as somebody who was just very you know interested in truth, right? And I guess I think my dad tried his best to teach me the kind of orthodox faith, and I I think I still you know benefited from that very strongly when I when I came to Catholicism, but it it wasn't I guess it wasn't enough to kind of inoculate me against the you know, the biggest thing, the, the biggest thing I remember is just trying to ask them like, so wait a second. So if somebody says they accept Jesus, they doesn't matter what they do. They can be the worst person ever. They go to heaven. And yet, you know, my best friend growing up was totally irreligious and she's automatically going to hell because she doesn't accept Jesus into her heart or what have mm-hmm. you. And that, that just didn't make any sense to me. And of course it still doesn't because it isn't true. Uh, that's, that's not how, <laughs> that's not how it works. You, you do have to accept Jesus, but you also have to actually, you know, respond to grace and actually yeah, follow it's, the commandments. It's right? more than just a one and done kind of. Yeah. yeah. Just to clarify, just in case anyone's, you know, thinking that I was trying to go. Jay into said you don't so have to know. accept Jesus <laughs> into your heart. Yeah, no, that's exactly. It's like, make sure the Catholics know, no, people definitely go to hell and you need to be Catholic. But, um, 
yeah, it, it just, I think that was the biggest thing. And so this, this kind of, it was a social thing and it became more and more of a social thing. And about over time, I just, I didn't really, I didn't really believe. And I had never really accepted the basic things like, you know, scripture alone was never something that made sense. You know, like I, I, I never mean, really. Is that, is that the experience of religion without sacraments? I mean, I'm a cradle Catholic. I don't know, but I kind of feel like I you don't have sacraments. That. If you don't have liturgy that really puts you at the foot of the cross on Calvary, then all you really have is fellowship, right? I mean, what else? Did yeah. you oh, it's have? true. Well, I always thought this, that thousand other things, you know, we'd go to, we'd go to church on Sundays, right? And I, you know, I'd get a lot of these churches were these kind of big non-denominational churches and we, and it, you know, it wasn't at all like growing up where, you know, you have to go to this Orthodox church. It was, oh, we can go to this church this week and this church the next week. And, you know, we'd go with our, you know, where, where are your friends going to church this day? And they weren't really denominational, right? And most of them just, no, we all believe the Bible. So it didn't really matter where you went. And to me, it was more like going to a concert, honestly, you know, they had great, you know, great music and it was, energetic and it's all very uh, emotion driven right the whole the whole kind of you know the liturgical style of non-denominational protestantism is basically to use as much as much music as possible to get the right emotional response and then have a really long sermon and then eat some donuts and go home okay so yeah but it's interesting though because i also didn't now i i really enjoy eastern liturgies and i think they're beautiful and that now when my dad talks about the you know you know rich you know traditions and what they all mean i'm fascinated by it. but as a kid i just I don't, I don't know what it was. I, I, I don't know if it was, I'm of course part of it was probably just my own ignorance, unwillingness, feeling, feeling left out and, you know, kind of selfish reasons, right. For not seeing the beauty in it. But, you know, when I became Catholic, it's like, I was immediately very wary of the just, Oh, the good liturgy fixes everything. Now I'm a lot more in that camp, but I still have this understanding of, you know, you know, there, there is something, there's something else that has to be there. And I'm still not exactly sure I know what that missing ingredient was. For I me. mean, I think part of it, there. I think part of it, and I don't want to speculate for too long and take you off track for, yeah, for we're so trade, off track, but right? I, <laughs> I think we're, we're on an, we're on a story arc. It's, it's going, yeah, but, up and down, but right. I, I do think though that, that the world, particularly the modern world works against uh, the liturgy. I mean, everything Absolutely. about modernity is about us. It is, mm -hmm. about, I mean, we live in the age of personalization and customization and honestly in business and in other things, it's great because you get what you want and you know, you have happy customers and, and companies who cater to that do well and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it, I've done both before I became a traditional Catholic. I went to the Byzantine uh, church all the time mm -hmm. because it was the next best thing. I mean, I couldn't, Oh yeah, you know, absolutely. when, when all there was, was bad Novus Ordo parishes that were fruity and, you know, guitars and glad tambourines the Byzantine and the Divine Liturgy of, of St. John Chrysostom. I say that to people all the time. Yeah. yeah. Go yeah, there. I, I went all the time. Go there. And I loved it. And, um, but I can understand, you know, as, as it's sort of a sliding scale, you know, at least the Byzantine liturgies are typically vernacular. Uh, so they have the reverence. But I mean, as you, as you go deeper into things like the traditional Latin Mass, you feel completely excluded when you go to the traditional Latin Mass when all you've ever known are, are things that totally cater to your ego. And, and you find yourself sitting there subconsciously screaming, what about me? What about me? When are you going to include me in any of this? I don't know what's going on. I don't like this. And it's all about your experience. It's not about the fact that this is, you know, an act of, of oblation, a sin offering to God. And, you know, the, it's Christ, the high priest, offering Christ the victim to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all this rich, not just symbolism, but, but actual mysticism that's going on you don't pick up on any of it. You just feel like, Hey, they got their back to me. They're quiet. I don't know what's happening and I don't like it. And I, and, and so I think modernity really works against that. And I've even had 
priests in confession at times when I've struggled with my faith or whatever say, you know, are you, are you too involved in the world? Are you being too worldly? Because that'll pull you away. It does. Yeah. And it's really hard not to because we're immersed in our culture, such as it is, all the time. Well, yeah, for me, that's, that's why I'm so, I, I still am kind of baffled when I look back and I, I question, like, what, what was it that stopped me from remaining in the Greek Orthodox Church, right? Being what it was. And now, I mean, you know, maybe the more positive side is that this had to happen so that I could eventually become Catholic. Who knows? But I, I don't know. Because for me, you know, you say things like the, I think you're definitely right about that, that we're so used to things that, that cater to us. Right. And I think I certainly was impacted by that. Like everybody is, you know, I had, I had in a way less kind of experience of the world than a lot of people. I was homeschooled as a child and my family was a lot more, you know, kind of conservative as a whole back then, you know, I really didn't, you know, I didn't watch MTV and all this stuff. Yeah. You know, didn't listen yeah. to Britney Spears, wasn't allowed, you know, all these help, help us of- to understand contextually, because I, I mean, you don't have to tell your age cause you're a woman and I would, I would not risk. I will be 27 in April. Okay. Well, I was going to say what <laughs> decade, what decade were you born? What was the decade you identify growing up in? What were oh, the yeah. years? I mean, what, oh, my I childhood. Was born in '92, so okay. the, I would say the I have a memory of like the very, very late '90s, but yeah, the early 2000s, right? And I think yeah, that my childhood and, was the '80s. Yeah. I was born in the '70s, and yeah. I remember the '80s as like that's when I was growing up. I would say for me, it'd be like yeah, the the early 2000s because I have just pretty distinct memories from around yeah, from around the turn of, turn did of you, the century. Did you pretty much always have internet? Um, no. And more than anything, we, we lived in the middle of nowhere, still do. And I, we didn't even have high speed internet until very, very, very late. So I was totally shielded from things like YouTube. I used the internet when I was, when I was a kid, I used the internet to do things like make websites with notepad. Um, and you know, like I was very, I'd use it for creative. But things. when did that so- start for you? I mean, cause for me, I distinctly remember the, the shift from the analog to the digital world. I remember being 15 and getting my first modem and getting on local BBSs and then getting on the internet. And I got a certificate saying I was one of the first 200 users in my county and all this kind of stuff. But it was (laughs) up until that point, everything was manual. I went to the library. I had to look things up in the card catalog. I I had to call people on my rotary phone. I had to do all that. And then suddenly everything changed and it accelerated from that point on. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is something generationally that changes when you grow up immersed in this, everything. I think that's true. But I've, I've thought about that though, in terms of like my, my youngest sister is six years younger than me. And to me, I see that more with her generation. She was born in 1998. Right. So she truly has never, like the biggest thing to me is I definitely grew. I remember I grew up before social media, anyone yeah. you know, at its advent, I wasn't allowed to use it. Right. I also, I didn't, I got my first cell phone when I was 17. I had a flip phone. I paid for it myself. Like, so I Your think just because smart. In that respect. Yeah, the way yeah, the way my family was in a lot of ways, I think that it kind of pushed off that. So even though I would say you're right that typically this exact age group would probably be you know a couple of years ahead, I think I was kind of artificially held back a couple of years just because I wasn't in school, so I wasn't really exposed to this so much. Um, We had we didn't have like we had two TV channels until I was like (laughs) thirteen. We didn't have high speed internet. Like so, Mike, I was kind of so you might as well have grown up in the eighties in a lot of ways. So, so the, yeah, there's a, there's an element of that. So it's just it's fascinating to me, you know, when you think of, you know, when I think of my own development in things like in things like liturgy. Sorry, this is I'm just like <laughs> bringing back these ten. This, ideas is, what, once, this but, is what the podcast is for. It's it's to explore right. these topics. Explore them, yeah. <laughs> explore them off trails in different directions. Uh, yeah, but it's it's funny what you mentioned specifically about the for people that are so used to the Novus Ordo that do you know experience the Latin Mass is so alienating because it's not your language. Or for me. 
it was strange. I never felt, I don't think I ever, I mean, you, maybe you've heard me say, I mean, you've heard me say some dumb things at the beginning of my conversion. So for anyone watching this, you were one of the first people I had to deal with my like, you know, initial like, uh Oh, <laughs> I, gonna become I, have, I have no memory of dumb things. I don't know. You were good. just excited. Um, it was good. It was, it was actually, it was, you came over at one of the weirdest times in history of becoming Catholic. <laughs> and true. I was just so like, I don't know proud geeked out the fact that you actually did that at that moment when everybody else was having such a hard time Bye. I, I think i chalked up any excess to just uh just zeal yeah no zeal i mean it wasn't stupidity it was like something moved you god moved you there's Absolutely no did. there's no way somebody becomes a catholic in 2018 in the middle of everything that's going on with your background about you know anti-islamic stuff and then francis blowing smoke up the the what do you call the skirts that the guys wear uh in the islamic <laughs> world about how great oh. islam is and all this kind of stuff like that doesn't yeah. happen that doesn't happen on a normal case yeah. basis that's grace it's that's true it is and i <clears throat> well yeah i guess that's more referring to like I, I think when i first started you know exploring catholicism because, because my conversion was very quick right so i and I, maybe i can say the kind of catalyst of it in the moment but i you know i basically started going to mass and you know within two months i was received in the church because i started going to mass at the beginning of february of 2018 started going to started, mass at what point like are you knowing you're converting when you start going to mass or is i knew it about a curious? weekend no i knew about a weekend and I, I think i told my priest at that parish about a weekend and you started going because of people you had met right i mean you don't have to get into all the details of everything you don't want to get into but i mean there were people that you met along the well, way yeah so who were catholic and they kind of like there was an experience that moved you well, okay, so it's it's very very it's it's totally it's it's completely linked with the um, my experience in the counter jihad world. It really it really is because I so I was writing about these things and you saw that and you know and I had actually and it's funny you mentioned earlier the the kind of history of Christianity and Christendom specifically and other clashes with Islam throughout history. Yeah. That was something that as much as I didn't agree with the Catholic Church, I didn't I think I didn't really have much of an um, the same anti-Catholicism that I see from a lot of people, because first of all, I didn't grow up Protestant. I didn't grow up in, especially the areas of Protestantism where it's, Oh, the Catholic church is, Oh, it's not biblical. And because I never accepted the basic idea of everything's in the Bible. I didn't oppose the Catholic church on that basis. You know, my dad is not one of the very anti-Catholic Orthodox that you'll sometimes see who are like, Oh, you know, this, <laughs> especially the, the very like hardcore Russians, um, not to generalize and be racist. Yes. But, but you know, it's uh, uh, very bad. Yeah, exactly. Orthodox. Right. You know, so you don't, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. The Orthodox know what I'm talking about. Like, with those crazy some I, think, of the I think everybody knows what you're talking about yeah it's, it's true and i so i never was really exposed to that so i don't i never had a, a kind of innate animosity towards the catholic church which is good but as i you know i started researching islam and th especially things like the crusades right i i just had a i developed a respect for the catholic church i, I really looked at it and thought wow th there's something here that these people fought back you know and they, and they they really understood what's at stake you know yeah. and that it was life and death and that they they, and they had that assuredness of their conviction. So that spoke to me. So even this was like kind of bubbling in the background while all this was going on. And at this point, as I said, I was, you know, um, I was, you know, considering Orthodox Judaism because I would read these, I wanted, I wanted God, right? Like this is, this is pretty, pretty clear from, so I would say I was irreligious in a lot of ways, certainly in how I lived my life, but I, there was a part of me that was, I guess I was, even just in terms of my basic political discourse, maybe in a kind of like modernist Jordan Peterson-y kind of way, I was seeing, you know, seeing the effect of the loss of Christianity, right? And I, I read this book, like, um, The Strange Death of Europe by Douglas Murray, who's, mm -hmm. you know, an atheist, a gay atheist who writes very good things about Islam. I think we, and, I think we call them gay theists, right? Atheists, <clears throat> yeah. 
That's the politically correct term. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a gay theist, Douglas Murray. And this book, uh, which I actually loved, I bought it for my dad for Christmas, and he also really enjoyed it. But he really, you know, he really laid out well just the need, like the the reality that Christian values brought, bring to society, whether you believe in them or not, that they are valuable things. And so I started, there was a, you know, I was living a, a lifestyle that made it difficult to conform myself to those things. And I didn't believe enough to, to really have the conviction to give up my sins, but there was a part of me that knew and a part of me that desperately wanted God. So I think what ended up happening was, is that I was invited to a counter jihad training course for a week um, in Texas and it was a pretty big deal. I was, I was invited and sponsored to go. Um, I had never done anything like that before. And this were, these were people that really knew what they were doing. And I would get to, you know, meet some of these experts. And it was kind of, you know, it was in a way secretive. Like, I couldn't even really talk about this for the longest time afterwards, right? Of the detail that was there and what have you. Like, we literally got, you know, driven to, like, a location that we didn't even know the address of. Like, it was pretty cool. But did they, did they put like a black hood over violent. your face? I mean, like, just about, you know, <laughs> just, just about. Like, that was the next step. I think if there'd been any security worries, that would have been next. But um, so, so I went to this course and it's, that is where my life changed. So firstly, there were those, there were three Catholics there who impacted me in different ways. Um, one of them is actually uh, my son's godmother. I still talk to her, you know, she's still in my life and I'm very thankful for her and her faith and her, her story is, is amazing. Godmother later on, because at the time you weren't thinking about converting. No, no, not not at all. Nothing she about became, the, and nothing about this trip. But yeah, I mean, that's the so, relevance of this person yeah. in your life is that she became the yeah. godmother. Okay. Yeah, sorry. So for anyone, <laughs> thank you. Keep keep me in line here because I, I I'm just trying to keep the timeline time. sorted. You know. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's it's a. It's I, like, yeah. It's, it's a like mess. a universe. It's like a cinematic universe of things that happen. But this is this is a. I, you know, I, I like to I, I like to talk about these things. I like a kind of long form chance to talk about them because conversions are not this simple thing. Like no. I was a perfect Protestant. I went to church every day. And then I, you know, read, read the Bible and realized that Catholicism is true. And I slowly became Catholic. Those stories exist, but people like me that, you know, the past I had, like that's, it's it's messy. messy. It's very messy. messy. And mine is, mine is maybe messier than most in a lot of ways. But so I, so I went on this trip and this was not religious at all. Right. So these people were Catholic. I didn't realize they were, I didn't know any of them were Catholic at the time that I went. And what I first noticed is they would make the sign of the cross before they ate. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. They must be Catholic, right? Because I never really, you know, I haven't really encountered many Protestants who do that. I don't know if any of the more kind of, you know, evangelical, older Protestant traditions still keep that. But it's not something I saw. And it was, of course, something I grew up very naturally doing. I can tell you it took a very long time to go from the right to left yeah, crossing. That's a tough transition. I, I still do those three fingers, though. I'm keeping those. You know what, like, though? That's actually traditional. So that is traditional. That is a Trinitarian thing. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, Trinitarian. Yeah, God and man, you know. <laughs> so I that, you know, it's ingrained. In that's me. legit, man. That's not East yeah, and West. Yeah, that's I'm just not old school. That. That's like old like thousands of years old. Yeah. <laughs> what is this, like, floppy hand thing as you will do? No. <laughs> <laughs> dunking on the the western western trap yeah so i i saw that and i i don't know we we would pray in the morning before we worked and keep in mind this was one of the busiest things ever we worked we would get a, i would be up at like 5 30 you know we'd eat breakfast at like 7 and we would work for like 12 13 hours a day i don't think i've ever worked hard in my life studying anything and it was it was amazing for me because i was so honored to be there with these people i was the youngest person by like <laughs> like 15 I think 15 years for the next oldest person and others were like 30 years old (laughs) but it was great it was a small group and we were just in this house and we it was a really intense experience and an intense intellectual experience and and just my real first experience of being like wow so I went from being this little little writer and being on Twitter to you know there I actually had a chance to talk to these people who really know what they're talking about who believe in me right who were willing to get the get the money there so I could do this and 
So I was just in a, it was an interesting place to be in, I guess, as well. And I was away from my son for the first time in ages. I'd never left him that long. <laughs> and so, but there was this quaint appeal of things. Like we'd pray in the morning before we worked and then we'd pray before meals together. And I, I didn't really believe it, but I just, it, it reminded me of, it reminded me of my dad, you know, saying prayer before dinner or whatever. And it just softened my heart. And, but I guess I, if I could point to one thing that happened that week, it was, we had to watch these videos of, um, this, these extremely violent jihadi videos, like extremely violent. And I've seen a few of them and I'm not a person who's really that bothered by these things. I can usually, you know, grin and bear it, but they really wanted it. They, and I'm glad they did this. They really wanted to hammer home. This is what this is. Like, this isn't a joke. Yeah. Like the work you're doing, talking about this stuff and being, you know, being honest about it and knowing it, you know, this is because we want to prevent this. And I, I don't know how long it was. It, it felt like an hour at the time, you know, and of course there's only one other girl there. My son's God, now godmother aforementioned who didn't cry. I of course cried like just, I don't think I've ever cried so hard in my life. And the, the one that really got me was this, this young, this young girl, like, I don't know, maybe like 13 years old and she's, you know, buried up to her neck being stoned to death and she's crying for her mom. Mm. And he just watched her die. You know, oh, that's, and yeah. it's, yeah, I, I like tear up thinking about it, right? It's just, and I, I mean, I have, I have a 13 year old right now and I, yeah, that is, <laughs> that's what that's I see. What it's like. yeah. yeah. That's what, and, th and that is what this is. Like, this isn't a joke. I don't talk about this, you know, as much now just as my other focuses, but you know, I'm never going to be, you know, if anyone asks, <laughs> you're going to hear the full truth because it's important. And, you know, so, but what I realized in that moment was just, I spend so much of my time and energy and I put myself out there to the point, you know, I've, I've had local newspapers write hit pieces about me and I've you know, endured a lot of criticism from family and friends for the stuff I'd say. And I have really, you know, I'd sacrifice some things, you know, small sacrifices, right. Compared to, you know, real sacrifices, but you know, I, I'd, I'd sacrifice things to fight this evil, right. In a lot of ways I'd spend a lot of my time. And, and, I, I mean, I'd that's, and that is what it is. It's evil. You know, it, it's, exactly. You it might as well. I mean, it's like, it's like criticizing somebody for saying, Hey, the Nazis suck and they kill a lot of people and they're really bad guys. Yeah, and, right. You know, I mean, it's Nazism and, and is Islamism are so similar yeah. in their supremacist ideology and people don't realize that. And it, they're both evil. It is. And I have no problem saying it. And, um, it's, but I guess I realized in that, in that evil. So I, I, I knew that it was evil, right? I'd seen this stuff. I knew the stuff. I wrote yeah, about you, this I stuff. mean, that's why you were there. I heard stories. I talked to, I, you know, I talked to ex-Muslims doing just unbelievable stories of the abuse they've suffered. Like, you know, I, I was not going into this blind thinking, oh, Islam's fine. Like, like I knew. And yet something in really being faced with it, sitting with these people that I respected and being faced with, we're trusting you to be here because this matters. This is evil. And you're, you're somebody that, you know, you know, stuck your neck out. Yeah. And, being faced with that, I realized like almost it just, it just, I just washed over me that I fight these things and I have nothing to fight for. What do I have to fight for? What, it, what is the good that I'm fighting for here? So you, fight, I, you, you, I, I mean, it, is it a recognition you're fighting against something, but not for something? Is that what Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. I, I realized that what is the, what is the good that I'm fighting for? Is it just, I, I realized it had to be more than just, you know, my, my life, you know, my freedom as this kind of hazy political concept like what is the meaning of what is the meaning of what i'm fighting for these people are willing to do this for something and i'm not even willing to you know commit my worldview to anything i'm just kind of going around with what sounds good to me you know and I've, yeah i thought deeply about things i didn't i never was somebody to just kind of follow the crowd stupidly but even so like i i realized i didn't really have anything to fight for especially morally and and, and couple this with like i said those kind of months of seeing, wow, you know, this, this kind of, 
these Christian beliefs and religion in general. I, you know, I, cause I kind of included Judaism in this at the time because I was very interested in it. Um, just in terms of, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but you know, at, at the time, you know, I kind of included like the specifically like, you know, Orthodox Judaism in terms of things like, you know, family values and that sort of thing. Like I, I saw a value in that even religion, broadly speaking, excluding Islam basically. And so I was already kind of, you know, I was not an atheist. I, you know, I res- had respect for people who believed in God and I, part of me was envious of them. I wanted to, I think, and I was just too intellectually prideful to just really say, I'm going to do this. And, and as I said, I was in a situation where I was kind of committed to my sins at the time. Right. And it's hard to let that go. And so anyway, I, so, and also between talking to these Catholics and they, none of them tried to convert me necessarily, you know, and, and the one, the one guy was one of the guys who ran the course. Um, he, you know, he had to drive me back to the airport. I just totally remember this because I had to stay later than everybody in my, then my flight was delayed and I had to stay in a hotel or something like that. And we just had this car ride and he just looked at, and he asked me about, um, just my, you know, just stuff about my family, you know, my faith. And, you know, he really was the first person to even bring it up. Like, you know, I see you, you know, I saw you pray and stuff. Like, what are your religious beliefs? Like, he didn't really talk about everyone else there was Protestant. Like, it was like a very pro-Christian group and everyone was really Protestant. And um, he, he asked me, you know, when was the last time that you really prayed? You know, and I don't know, something, I was just like, something in it really convicted me. And this was that without even saying, you know, you need to be Catholic. <laughs> You're going to know salvation outside the church. Like it was nothing like that at all. And even though I'd say they're, you know, probably conservative, you know, conservative Catholics, Orthodox Catholics, you know, and I probably not fans of guitars at mass at least, right? <laughs> not like mass attendees, but you know, same ish. And I, I went to the hotel that night and it's funny because I've, I've retweeted this a few times, but there's an actually, there's a video of me singing the song that I sang right before I prayed. And I just remember how I felt in that exact moment. And I think that was the first time I was like, okay, I've been looking for God and I, I could feel it and I knew it and I prayed and I got home the next day and I, I think I was driving back from the airport and my dad and I'm like, dad, can I go to church with you on Sunday? And he was like, you know, <laughs> he was like, you, you want to, <laughs> you want to go to church with me on Sunday? And I was like, yeah, I'd like to go. And he's like, sure, of course. Um, and at the time, sorry, this is really long. Monologue, no, I, mean, but, um, I mean, this has been like 12 years since you've gone with him, right? I mean, yeah, it had been a while. I think my last time I had been, not counting a couple of funerals, you know, had been, you know, like, yeah, probably like very early teen years. I think my last time I probably went to confession, I was like 12, you know, like this had been a while. Yeah. And it, maybe if, again, handful of times here and there, but since I definitely since I expressed an interest, I mean, really never unheard of to him. And I, I want to go. And that week, I, so at the time I was living, um, now I live with my family, but at the time my son and I were living in um in town and we lived literally a two-minute walk from a catholic church um i'd walked by it probably thousands of times you know like it was so close to my house i never never thought twice about it you know never really thought anything of it and that weekend that sunday it's like nine in the morning (laughs) my dad calls me and he's like oh steph i'm so sorry like i can't go to church today the freezing rain here the roads are totally impassable and i was like i just looked and i was like I'm going to have to go to Catholic church because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to Protestant church. And I'm like, I live five seconds. Right. And I, I just, I knew I, I was like, I was really shy to go. Like I, I didn't know anybody. I don't know anything about yeah. anything. Yeah. Like, what do I know? I'm, I haven't been in a church at all. Like in willingly in a long time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. So I bundle up my, at the time, you know, two year old and it's freezing and miserable outside. <laughs> and we go into the church and I just, and keep in mind, you know, this was a very modern, very Novus Ordo church, you know, the kind of, uh, based on aesthetics alone, even at the time, the kind of church, before knowing anything, but at the time, the kind of church that I'd have been like, 
this is not, <laughs> this would not be my main choice of churches <laughs> in my town. And I just walked in and I just started like tearing up. Cause you felt him. Did. You felt I did. He was there. I did. And this I, is the thing I people in. don't understand like the real presence, like even in the worst circumstances, you can feel it. You really can, you know, and this is again, it, and this is in the midst of my, you know, humiliation. I'm, all, I'm with this little kid who doesn't listen, who's crazy, who still is. And, you know, I'm like, what am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? He's going to hate this. I'm going to like be embarrassing. I don't know what to do. I mean, the only saving thing here was again, being used to very, very long Greek divine liturgy said in Greek. I was yeah. like, you know, people would be like, Oh, Catholic church isn't understandable enough. I'm like, you know, like this is easier. This is easier. Like you can read, at least you can read Latin in the same. It's like alphabet. two and a half hours of people milling around and goats coming in and out and stuff. Or yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I show my dad this podcast. I'll see if he'll be triggered. No, I mean, um, I went. You know, I, <laughs> when I was traveling through Europe, I went to a Russian Orthodox church one Sunday because I couldn't find a Catholic yeah. church. And I was like, dang, this yeah, is like this, forever yeah, it's long. It's a different world. It's very long. I'd say the average. And there was no was structure. Like, I mean, like what was going on in the altar was very structured, but everybody was just walking around. People are sitting. I'd the say There's no chairs yeah. anywhere. First I, like, I grew up was a little, a little more, a little more kind of rubrical, but, but to an extent, yeah, that's the case. But you know, I, I so I, I knew this, so that was a saving grace, right? That I knew walking to this Catholic church. I was like, well, it's not going to be, you know, that confusing. I'm like, it'll be in English and it'll yeah. be. And then, then of course, even going to Latin mass, I'll point out to people, I learned to read Greek phonetically as a child. I'm not very good at it now, but it's like, you know, at least in Latin, you're reading the same alphabet, you know, like your pronunciation might suck, but you can figure out like what's being said. Try doing that in Greek when you're trying to read quickly as a priest is, you know, you're just going off in Greek. And I can't even think of a Greek hymn to off the top of my head, but so, you know, so I go in and I'm with my son and I don't know, I just, I immediately, and I was also talking with these people from the trip and I was kind of telling them like, yeah, you know, I think you're right about this and I, I want to think about this. And I, I do. And I, I felt like something in me was just, yeah, again, God was very clearly calling me. And it's, it's again, hard to explain logically and rationally as I like to do with other things, but I, I don't know. I just, I just knew. And I, and it's funny as, as this was going on, my father had actually been able to drive. And he had come to my house looking for me to take me to church with him because he was like, I really wanted to come. He's like, I didn't want to miss a chance of you going to church. And the next week I actually went to church with him and I just did, it was the complete opposite feeling. All of my childhood, yeah. just isolation. And, and again, and I will clarify, I don't feel like this at all now. You know, I went to my father's church for like my, my grandfather's funeral who passed away. Also he, he died as I was converting. He, he, he saw me, you know, come back to God on his, like before, right before he died. Wow pretty amazing um and i but sorry so i'm just like <laughs> my, speaking of my dad is just like in the door there <laughs> but i was like dad go away um what was i saying um, you were just oh, talking sorry, about how sorry. like when you first started to uh like when you went back to the greek orthodox um right, like right, you right. felt like something was off yeah I, I, these these childhood you know, and again, it, it is, it is emotional a lot of ways. I'm not saying I was acting on reason and I don't claim to be, and I don't think that people should generally necessarily follow these things. Right. I think that it took God shaping me in a lot of ways and you can, you can definitely approach Catholicism from a point of reason and I encourage people to, but no, but I also know, think people need to trust their instincts. And I think that there God is an instinct. And it, yeah. Yeah. That is there. It absolutely is there. It just can't go above what is, you know, right. It was objectively true. But at the time, that's what I had. God was working very clearly in me with what I was given at the time. And, you know, I was doing this on my own, you know, as a, you know, single divorced mom with a little kid, you know, like I, 
I, I'm the only Catholic in my family, only Catholic among friends before I became Catholic. You know, it was a totally shocking. And this is the one religion I'd never considered. I, I really can say that. It's the one version of Christianity, the one religion in general I'd never considered. And so, yeah, so I'd gone to that church and I just didn't, I don't know, something was wrong with it. And I, I just was like, this isn't right. And the next week, uh, so I think between this time, I emailed the secretariat that I had met briefly. I had gone up to her all awkward and, you know, talkative as I want to do. And was like, ah, like I, yeah, <laughs> hi, I'm new. Like, where should I sit kind of thing? And, you know, she was very kind to me and definitely always was to me and my son. So I'm thankful for that. And our priest at that parish was as well, despite, again, being very, very nervous. Sort of <laughs> I've been back there in a while. But, but you know, God God used those people there, too. So you yeah. mentioned, you mentioned being divorced and being a single mom. How does that factor into all of this? Well, I think it factors in because it's, um, I don't know, it, it makes things harder to, to accept the faith and to change your life when so many, when your circumstances are such a way that giving up your sins is, is harder. And there's this, there's this fear, there was this fear there, right? Like if I, if I give this up and become Catholic, first of all, I was willing to convert, not even knowing how annulments worked. And I, cause I knew there was a, you know, I'd never really even understood that annulments were still a thing in the Catholic church. I actually remember talking to you about this. Yeah, I, yeah. You, you did. You did. And I was terrified. I was terrified. Right. And, and I will say, but I, but I will say again, to speak to the kind of feeling, conviction and instinct, I was so sure that I was willing to be alone forever and not even have the possibility because I knew yeah. it was the right thing. To do. Yeah, if that's and what that's, it took. That's, yeah. that's a scary thing. To, but that is a scary thing to think about. And it's I think incredibly that incredibly scary, but it's also profound that you felt that strongly. I mean, that's I think that's a part of your conversion that's a little bit undersold, is that you know, all you wanted was to have a healthy relationship in a marriage and, and children and all this kind of stuff. And you came from one that wasn't and then you know, you weren't even religious at the time and all this stuff had gone on and now you're converting and you're like, I'm willing to give up this thing that I want more than anything else in the world because I believe this is true. To me, that's courage. I mean, I, I know you're not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to pat myself on the back. But, <laughs> but I mean, to me, that is an incredibly courageous thing to do because you're saying truth before everything else. Truth before you know, this fundamental need that I have inside me for companionship and love and all this kind of stuff, God comes first. That's huge. That's a big deal. And for my son, you know, I'm, you know, at the time still, like I was, you know, living off of, like I lived in my grandfather who died, which is what, you know, him, him dying. We had to sell the house, the, the apartment I was living in. Um, you know, so at the time I was, you know, I was still in a place where I was just, you know, this, you know, living off of my little bit of writing and yeah with my son you know so the the thought of never being able to marry is you know was a spe was especially terrifying even so it was everything it was terrifying financially it was terrifying emotionally and i didn't know that you know um and you know and, and to this day people will still go after me about you know that oh you were divorced and shouldn't you just get back with your son's father and all these and i'm like well i came to find out i mean this god did give you know i the church very blatantly i had i had a second chance from that i had a way out from that that my First of all, my son's father was Catholic, which he was so lapsed and uninvolved that I literally forgot he was Catholic until I looked into it. <laughs> Baptized <laughs> Catholic, um, and you know we were married by a Protestant minister, so it was um, it was a very open and shut defective form case. And my fact of me being baptized Orthodox was defective form because they considered to have valid marriages, and you know it was this whole thing. So basically, I was so free and clear in that in that case. But I didn't. But I just want to emphasize, I didn't know that when I knew I had no, to be Catholic. I remember. And, I remember but, how afraid yeah. you were. Yeah, I was. And but you weren't stopping. I mean, you were afraid, but you weren't slowing down. 
no. And that, and that's, and that's why I talk about that aspect of things and why I don't, you know, I don't care people. I don't love when people, you know, criticize and say, Oh, why don't you just go back to some song? Why don't you do this and that? And it's, a, you know, a, because annulments are, you know, can be abused and because marriage is sure. such a mess, all these things. And that, yeah, you should, you know, you should try and make it work. And, and I don't know if I had been with, with my son's father at the time, my conversion, I, I don't know what I would have done. Right. I, I can't, I, I can't know that we've been separated already for over a year at that point. Yeah, people, people don't yeah. understand all the details of what goes on in a relationship. And the thing is, is that one of the primary purposes of marriage is to help each other and the children get to heaven and not all spouses are um, aligned with that goal. And marriage right. is not a band-aid that fixes things. You know, if there's a relationship that leads to a child, marriage is not necessarily something that's going to. Yeah. And, that, and that, yeah. And that's what people, you know, I want to clarify as well is that, you know, I was, we were in a bad relationship before we got married. We, my son was seven months old and we got married. You know, we actually lived in the same home for six months after it was a terrible snake. I knew I knew I did it on my so-called wedding day out of, as an act of final desperate. I remember just begging God, like, can you just like, I, I had that level of faith, that very, like, you know, the kind of the, the kind of level of faith that prompted me to get a tattoo of a cross. Like, <laughs> oh, I believe in Jesus, you know? <laughs> that kind of faith. But I, I still had this, I remember distinctly before I got married to my son's father saying, you know, just God, can he just try 10%? Just give me, I need something like, it, is this the right? And I had, and I had these, you know, these friends I'd grown up with these, these, you know, Protestant friends I'd grown up with saying, you should get married. It's the right thing to do. And Trying I to make it right. Yeah. And, and again, but part of me knew that it doesn't, didn't ultimately matter. Right. Because I already had a child with him. So what was it? What was a divorce? Right. $200 in the paperwork. So I, you know, I didn't even go into it even to, forget the defective form thing. I definitely didn't go into it with even, you know, my intentions were terrible, right? Like I still, I wasn't. Yeah, the, de the defect in consent was on multiple fronts. Possible. Yeah, it was, yeah, there was other grounds <laughs> anyway. But, you know, it's, but the reason I talk about these things, right? And, and why I don't, I don't like people rude. I don't mind people ask me about it, right? I don't, I'm not really going to, I'm not really in business saying, oh, that's nobody's business. You don't know people's lives. And for people who don't want everyone to know everything about their lives, like I completely respect that. But for me, it was, I talk about this specific issue because I want to show people the, First of all, the, the unvarnished truth that it, it, I became Catholic and I have suffered immensely for it in a lot of things. I have sacrificed a lot to follow it and I wouldn't take it back ever, no matter what. And, and I want people to see that, you know? And you did it at a time when the church <laughs> yeah. was trying <laughs> to let everybody off the hook, you know, about it. I mean, yeah. and the thing was, you came into it saying, a Morris, Leticia, whatever. Like, I'm not looking for an easy <laughs> way out. Garbage. I want to know the truth. Like, is my marriage valid? Is it not? I'm not going to look for a free pass. I don't want something that's insincere or false. That's not what I'm looking for. I just want to know, was this valid? And if it's not, what are my options? And I'm going to submit to the church on that. And, you know, you talk to priests and theologians. and I mean, everybody's like, yeah, this is an open and shut case. This wasn't. But, but the thing is, yeah. is that, like you said, you didn't know going in, but you were like, but this is true. And I'm going to do it. And I'm not looking for the Amoris Laetitia hall pass. No, I'm not. And I think a lot of people think they are, but they're really not either. I think that, and that's a great disservice to people outside of the church. That, I think you know, it's insulting, this. honestly, to people who go through this and actually oh, care. Is. Yeah. It is insulting because it's in, I mean, speaking as a, the young, you know, as a young person who's constantly being told that, you know, you don't, you can't really handle the real truth. We'll just give you the watered down thing. And it doesn't really matter if you, you know, follow the lord's commandments and all these things and i'm like because you can't do you know, it anyway right? I mean, yeah yeah exactly like i i just i just i want truth i want jesus christ i want truth same thing and i don't i don't want this watered down compromised version and 
you know, and, and I want people, I want people to see it's possible. And I, I know it's possible because I'm, I'm now a year out and still the best thing I've ever done. You yeah. know, my joy now is totally different and I, I've suffered in a lot of ways, but it hasn't been pointless suffering anymore. And that is a critical difference because we're all going to suffer, right? We, we are, right. we are all going to suffer, but is it going to be suffering that saves souls, saves our own souls, saves the souls of our family? I think it's one of the most undersold aspects of Christianity is that it gives meaning to suffering. I mean, that alone is such it a does. huge thing. That was one of the first, I think when I was, it's funny, I was still writing in very, very much writing in secular politics. And this was the whole thing too, that I transitioned away from. So, you know, my conversion was especially weird because I had already at this point, you know, about, you know it wasn't, you know, I'm a little more well-known now, even especially in Catholics. So at the time, you know, I still had like a decent following on like Twitter and things. So I converted very publicly, right? Like this was no, I think you still have more people following you on Twitter than me. I do. <laughs> I do, Steve. I, I mean, between, <laughs> between me and yeah. 1 Peter 5, I think I've got you beat, but it's like I think only so, button. yeah. And I mean, the site, Facebook, you're winning, but yeah. So it's, but it's, I don't know. I think it was interesting though, because I was I, writing. I'm going to have to destroy you. I'm going to have to find <laughs> Yes, <laughs> he's got to win. The competitive streak is just kicking in. Yeah, I had this, but it's it's interesting because I, I was at this point. So I wrestled with, you know, so finally I'd found something that I was good at. You know, I, I'd wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid, right? I've, I've always wanted to write. I thought I'd be doing, I wanted to write fiction novels <laughs> growing up. Turns same out here, I'm absolutely yeah, trash novels. I'm terrible at them. And I really like writing about politics and religion and all these other things. And I had finally found something that I was like, I'm on track doing this, right? So I, and, and, and even the counter job world, that's what I thought I'd be doing. I was finally making waves in that I was meeting the right people. I, I knew everyone in this world and I was, you know, you know, getting offered more opportunities and all this. And, but something, you know, when I found the Catholic faith, I was like, this is the foundational, most important thing. This is what I need to, and, and I'm, I need to be able to know this and study it and talk about it. And I, I can't do that with my focus being on just talking about kind of, you know, general conservative politics in the United States or these other things. And I mean, I still talk about these things now, you know, as an aside, but it had to be coming from a very Catholic basis. And I remember one of the first, just the, um, the one of the first articles I wrote was funny as, as I wrote about suffering because this was right after my grandfather died. Yeah. And I remember just praying with him on his deathbed and really meaning it and how beautiful that was. And seeing that, you know, he died just like, and obviously he, you know, died Greek Orthodox. So pray for the repose of his soul. But he died loving God and his suffering. He didn't want to be, I don't want to be just, you know, he wouldn't, he would never want them to just end his life because he's suffering. You know, see what mattered. And I'm thankful that I had an upbringing that, you know, my dad taught me. I never, you know, I, I ran from accepting it. I ran from accepting suffering, but I'm very, very fortunate. And I will always be thankful to my father for this, that I never had an idea of a Christianity that takes all your problems away because I knew that it's, it's linked with suffering. And now I just, I understand it more because I have the faith and it, it is, it's underrated. It, it gives, it gives the hardest things in our lives a purpose. Yeah. That's impressive. That's a, I mean, that's a good line. I never had an idea of a Christianity <laughs> that takes all your problems away. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's I didn't, profound, yeah. but it's profound. And I think a lot of people unfortunately do think that. So, okay, so so you become a Catholic during Easter of 2018. Yes. Where all this stuff happens. Your mm -hmm. son comes along with you. Um, he was um, baptized at Easter Vigil. Yeah, he had never even been baptized. That's how wow. little I took these things seriously. That was one of the most beautiful things. I was very late. He was unfortunately baptized in the new rite, but I'll let it go. Um, he 
I know. I, I always try to find out if there's a way to get like supplemental exorcism. Yeah. Like, can we just, can we just do, like, can we just throw, throw a yeah. thing like later? Would that be okay? He needs it with me in my past as his mother, right? <laughs> it's just, but, but yeah, he, he came with me and I'm so, and his, and just now just an aside about my son who I love with all my heart and he's three and he, he, he loves God. You can tell, you know, he, well, I mean, I have an appreciation for this because my wife was a single mother when I met her and she became a Catholic when her daughter was just four. She had just turned four <laughs> and she was baptized late and you know, my parents are, no. are her godparents. And so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. I, I see a parallel there and I, and I know that like when it happens, man, it just happens and everybody, you know, it's all in. Um, so, so this happens, your son comes along with you. The tornado sort of sets you down in Oz as it were. <laughs> Um, but then what next? I mean, what's life like for 26, 27 year old single mother who just flipped her life upside down, went all in on being Catholic. Nobody in her immediate circle of family or friends is part of that world. I mean, I, I know that you already talked about that. You sort of set the political discourse aside. You set the counter jihad thing aside because you're like, I need to get first principles locked down. But, but you've been doing that for the last year. So where does this take you now? Well, um, it took me first of all with a, it gave me a very, very deep sense of my responsibility to get it right and to pursue truth. You know, not just as I decide Catholicism is true, but in how, how I related to people, how I evangelize, because like I said, I had that, you know, that, that online world was a big part of it. Right. And especially since, like I said, I didn't have Catholic friends, didn't have a Catholic family, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, I was, I was already in a place where I was kind of working primarily on the internet. So there's these distant communities were already a big part of my life. Right. And I, and, and I knew that when I, when I posted, I remember posting a thread saying I was becoming Catholic and a lot of people were like <laughs> shocked by this. Right. And it's the like, upside of our social media problem yeah, though, is that you crazy. can connect with people who, you know, you don't live near these people, but. And this is why I defend social media in a lot of ways, because I've seen good things and I've seen people that people that follow have been following me for two years who are not even, you know, who are vaguely Christian or who are Protestant and they're still here. Right. And they're still asking me questions. We're still debating things. And we're still, you know, and I, I think the fact that those people are here, even if I get annoyed sometimes with answering these same objections, not seeing that they can't, what, why can't you see what I see? But I don't know. I, I think I was given a very interesting route into doing what I'm doing now with Catholic media stuff. Right. Because I, I already kind of took that audience with me and they, and ever but everyone was forced to see it kind of warts and all in a way, because it was in real time, right? Like the conversion yeah. was something that people saw. And I think the people, a lot of people now, don't remember this time, but there are people who I'm friends with who, you know, witnessed this all firsthand, right? And saw the, and because of that, I really understood the grave responsibility that I had to, to get it right. Right. And I, I didn't see this as just, oh, I'm new. So therefore no one's going to take it seriously. I thought. And there were people who were legitimately really shocked by this, right? I mean, people who turned on you, people who are like, nah, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I lost, I've lost friends. I've, you know, I've had, you know, lost people I've worked with. I've lost the respect of many people. I've, you know, there's, there have been those, those sacrifices and it, and it hurts, right? Sometimes because I'm human and. But you dealt, I mean, from what hurt. I saw, you dealt with a lot of these people very charitably and you tried to explain. Try. It to them. It's not always I mean, perfect, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I get it wrong sometimes and I can always be more charitable, but yeah, I think I. I, I guess I understand now that I've been found by God in a lot of ways. I understand even more deeply how lost I was. But I think I have a lot of compassion for people. And I think this is, this is something that I, I don't like the whole like, oh, converts are going to save the church kind of thing that's there a lot of the time. I don't think that's true. I think that without cradle Catholics, we would have nowhere to go. But I think there is something true of converts that even, even, even counting kind of 
you know, semi-decent Catholics who kind of follow the church's rules and you mostly go to mass on Sundays, even they, they don't know what it's like to truly live, you know, over a decade without the sacraments, right? To just totally be right. no recourse, no, no sanctifying grace for so long, relying solely on just kind of your own intellectual power and, and these sorts of things. And I really do know what that's like. So I think that because of that, I have a lot of compassion for people who are lost in various ways, whatever their error might be. Um, but that doesn't mean at the same time, that doesn't mean that I baby people. And, and I think that because I, I think back to our conversations, because, you know, when I first told you like, Hey, I'm becoming Catholic. Like you were really, you, you know, you were like basically the first traditional Catholic I knew. And I think that's a great thing because I basically, I completely, I feel like I pretty much completely skipped the like kind of conservative Catholic phase. Right. Like I, I was never I was really ask you about this, but I mean, yeah, do you remember the first thing I said to you? Yeah, he said, prepare to suffer or something yeah, like that. It was pretty, along yeah. those lines. And that's I'm thankful you told me that. Yeah. No, and, and you, but. Because, I mean, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anytime, but especially right now with everything that's going on, you mm-hmm. don't convert to Catholicism without the devil taking you out at the knees. That's just how it goes. Just yeah, goes. in a lot of ways, that's, yeah, I've experienced a lot of things like that in my, in my personal life, you know, romantically, a lot of really tough things have happened this past year. I, this year has been one of the fullest of my life and a lot of it's been really hard. And God lets and, it happen because he's like, you know yeah. what? I'm, you know, I'm, about, the, yeah. I'm about to purify you, baby. <laughs> exactly. I see the growth, no, I, but I see it. I see the, the ways that I'm growing and I'm still so far from where I want to be in virtue and all these things, but I see that I'm moving the right direction and I'm genuinely thankful for it. For things that I cried over and we're just like, why? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, the either like, why God? Or like, really? Is this funny to you? And the kind of things that have happened this year. And like I, the soundtrack I'm of your life is Garth Brooks, that. Unanswered Prayers. Yeah, that, yeah. But the spiritual things, God has been beyond generous in every possible way. And that's what I, you know, so I think that, and so I think, yeah, when I, when I talk to people and then just doing this kind of right, you know, being on social media from the start and having to engage this all the time, I think I took, I took that approach of being, you know, I want to be very clear with people. This is the best thing I ever did. Wouldn't take it back. And I would, you know, hope to be able to die for it. And and, and so you've been on this accelerated curve, right? So yeah, as you said, I mean, you started out with the Novus Ordo and I predicted to you very early on that, you know, from what I knew about you, you'd go trad and that happened pretty fast. Right. And I, and keep in mind too, and just to clarify, I was never, I never had a faith. Like I had always known of the existence of Latin mass. I knew about, I knew in a broad sense because of speaking to my father, I knew that Vatican II happened. It changed things. Like I, I, I wasn't, I feel like in a lot of ways I was less cut off from the kind of um, revolution that happened in the church in terms of understanding what it was than a lot of cradle Catholics. Who yeah, that makes sense. Happy in the Ordo. You know what I mean? So I, there was, I don't think I never was you know, just, just the fact of just looking at like me going to that church the first time and being like guitars really. And this architecture sucks. Like <laughs> I never, I never had a, a much of an attachment to Novus Order anyway. The only no. thing that I would say is that I had my only skepticism was about the Latin mass was only the vernacular thing. And that was because of, again, because of my upbringing in my association with non-vernacular liturgies was not Latin as a universal language. It was, we are Greek. This is in Greek. Everyone who's Greek fits in here. You don't, you're not Greek, really, you know, and everything not Greek doesn't fit here. So I had that slight skepticism, but I think I, I don't think there was ever a point when I wouldn't have jumped at the chance to at least visit a Latin mass, but I didn't have one near me. But you know, that attitude is actually interesting because I think if you apply it to the Latin mass, it's not we're Latin, it's we're Catholic, you're Catholic, Mm -hmm. you fit in here because you're Catholic. I mean, uh, we just published an article today about the Latin mass coming back to St. Petersburg, Russia. 
you know, it's like, I it doesn't matter. I, I opened it and I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if it's in Hong Kong. That's, it doesn't matter, exactly you know, it's cool. like, yeah. it is the mass for everybody. It's it's not about you being from a particular culture. It, it's like, this is transcendent. That's exactly the point that I kind of felt that. So my skepticism, I think, was, I think I was able to cast that aside quickly just by thinking about it a little more. Like, yeah. I'm very, I'm just saying that I'm very fortunate I didn't have the, I didn't have the connection like, oh, I love the the vernacular and I love the Novus Ordo. And a lot of people have that. And it's probably harder to overcome where I just had the, well, the Novus Ordo is what here. I've seen the grace that could come through it, right? Because I lived it. And it's what you, you know, had. I went every day with Dawson for like seven or eight months. And it was you know, what you had access through. to every day. It's what I had. And as I clarified to the, the people will tell me like, oh, what does she know? She still thinks the Novus Ordo is real. It's like, well, this is what I had. I think that it, the idea that there it cannot be grace in the Novus Ordo is ridiculous. I think my life is proof that it's, you know, as you said, the real presence is a very powerful thing, even in the worst circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not defending it. I think everybody knows I'm very, very, very harsh in my criticism. of sort of fortunately, God has blessed me with a Latin mass community now between two parishes. Um, it's at, you know, it's afternoons on two, two different churches, um, but between them, we have them every Sunday and I am so thankful that's awesome. For it. But at the time I didn't have it. No, it's all I had. And look, here's the thing. I mean, yeah. I want to say this now and yeah. I've, I've, I'm going to look right into the camera. I have, I have, I think said this before, you know, we publish articles that are very critical about the Novus Ordo. But the thing is, if you go to the Novus Ordo, listen, we love you. You're Catholic. This is how we grew up. I grew up, I went to the Novus Ordo for 26 years. Most of my extended family, and it's big, goes to the Novus Ordo. I don't hate them. There's not, there's no animosity. I don't look down on, on anybody who does this. I believe the old mass is superior as an act of worship to God, as an oblation of sacrifice, as a theological expression of Christian worship, many, many, many things. And I, and I think that fundamentally our, our uh, approach to liturgy shapes and affects everything that we do in terms of our relationship with God and the way that we see the world and, and the way that we're supposed to live in it. It's all very critical. But I understand that it's not your fault that this is what you have. And, and uh, Stephanie, I understand that this is not your fault. I mean, this is, this is what you have, and it's still real, and it's still valid, and you still have to cling to what you can find. And as soon as you have the possibility of doing it, if you can graduate to something more nourishing and better. more substantive, then fantastic, do it. But, but don't for a minute think that just because one thing is better than the other that, that you're a bad person when you don't have access to the other thing and that, stop like well that uh, it's you know nothing nothing invo involving the real presence of jesus christ could be worthless in and of itself right like it can be i think for me now you know the couple times i've attended the Novus Ordo, even after just a couple months of latin mass i am very fortunate that i don't have to but it again as far as how i but feel it bridged the gap i mean it got you exactly the people exactly like the reality is, is that I would not have been become Catholic had I not had that parish. It, it, even just just looking at the most basic thing of, I would have, I may have never even tried to go to a Catholic church had I. And my dad even says this that he admits this that if I had gone that, you know, remember I said that second Sunday when I went to his church, he he thinks that it's very possible that had I gone to that church that day and had that miserable feeling and just this, you know, not wanting to be here, not feeling right about it, that what if I never gone back? Yeah, yeah. And so you know, whatever it wasn't the most, you know. Perfect and again, I, I, I try not to pull any punches, but I also try to encourage people that, you know, if the information is out there and you can try and learn more about why, listen, yeah, like listen to traditionalists, right? Listen to them because, you know, it's very possible that they're, they're actually right. And, you know, I've been wrong on so many things and I've been like, well, great. They were right about this 50 years ago and I'm just catching up. But 
but yeah, it's, it's, I, I honestly, can, I, I think that's one of the most unfo- unfortunate things about tradition is that this, there's nothing about this that involves keeping score. This is not about we were right 50 years ago and why are you coming to this too, so late? You know, why did it take you so long to figure this out? If, if, oh yeah, no, I don't care. No, but if that is ever the approach of anybody, if it's ever condescending, yeah. if it's ever, stop. That's not oh. what it's about. The, the traditional mass isn't great because we like it. It's great because it, it's, great. It, it, it's, it's been tested through time. It has nourished countless saints. It is the fruit of, of sainted popes and theologians and doctors of the church. And it has spanned, you know, over a thousand years. I mean, this is something that nourished the church in a way that nothing else ever has. It's great because it has nothing to do with us because we would make it worse, honestly. I mean, exactly. that's the that's problem. Why the problem with Louis Ordo is that we took control He's of it project, and it worked. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, that's exactly it. And that's another point too. Like, I just want to say that, like, I, I, I look back and I think, well, these people have been saying this forever and I didn't listen. But I will say on the side of those people who have been listening to this for years, and even, even you, you never treated me like I was a fool when I came around on certain things I disagreed on. You were just happy that I did. Yeah. And I think that is something that is, because I think that a lot of, and then, you know, there are obviously problems within the traditionalist movement, but I would say overall, you know, my welcome in what I've done with writing from Peter five and, you know, other things I've written and just my social media stuff I have found the people truly rejoicing at, you know, one sinner's repentance, right? And Which is awesome person, because I saw people in the beginning I, I really doubting think that's you. I saw people doubting you because they're like, oh, you're, oh, they a new, do. you're a new convert. Who oh, are you yeah. to talk about this stuff? And I still get that from time to time. And I'll see, sometimes I'll see it on other people like, oh, nobody who's a convert should be allowed to talk about the faith for five years. And I'm thinking like, you know, I think, it, but again, it's, it's, on the other hand, I do think it's important to be, like I said, it's, I'm very cautious in a lot of ways with what I say. And I really try, if I screw something up, I really try, I really just ask, I pray every day for humility and to just be able to say I was wrong. And I, this is more, the best thing I don't want to lead souls astray in a world that's so full of people yeah. leading people astray. I refuse to be part of it. And I would rather be embarrassed and feel stupid because I didn't know something than get something that important wrong. And because of, and like I said, because of my, even my experience in secular politics, like I would see this excuse, right, from younger, and because I, I started doing that when I was like, I guess I would have been like t- turning 25 at the time. And I, I remember these excuses by these, you know, like young conservative types. And like, oh, well, she's young and she doesn't know. And I'm like, it doesn't mean you have less of a responsibility. You have more of a responsibility. You've stepped out and said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be here with the adults. I'm going to talk about big things that matter. You have more of a responsibility to get it right. And I felt that way about my conversion, especially because this is something yeah. that's talking about literally eternal life of souls, right? So I can see why people can be, you know, somewhat skeptical of converts. But that said, like, I think people need to sometimes read a little more before they <laughs> make those complaints. Yeah, like, no, it's true. It's and, and people appreciate your zeal. No. You know, you, you've been writing for us. Uh, have you been writing for other Catholic outlets too? I think you have, right? I've written before. Yeah, I've written for LifeSite before. I have a piece that I'm working on right now for Catholic Family News. Um, I think, I'm trying to think of other specifically Catholic places I've written for. Um, I've done like, you know, quite a few lately. I've done some um, radio and podcast interviews and I, a lot of time will write about the stuff I've written for you guys. And yeah. so yeah. for us, I guess, I'm part of the team here. You're, you're <laughs> but, very much part of the team yeah, and I'm very glad I'm to have you I'm more. honored. Yeah. So, okay. And it's kind of my home base. It's going to stay my home base, I think, because it's a, it fits me. You guys let me be my, <laughs> my full. Well, I mean, I practically yeah. had to beg you, but I was like, seriously, it's time. You need to start writing about this stuff. Cause you have this, I mean, the story is there. <laughs> you wanted me to, and it took so long and things were crazy. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this yet. And he was like, 
We believe in you, Stephanie. We always have. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, I mean, so what are your goals now as a content creator? You know, how have they shifted from when you were doing strictly political podcasting and writing? Well, I think my my biggest thing is that there's a lot of pressure that has in a way gone off of me despite having far more work now um, than ever before, especially being a single mom to a three-year-old who is not, um, you know, he's very, very demanding in a lot of ways. I'm living with in a very tiny house with uh, three other people. all these other challenges make it really hard to get the work I want to do done. But there is a, there's a piece about it because I know that, you know, when I was doing political stuff, it was always, and I, you know, I ran a YouTube show with, with guests, you know, multiple nights a week. I was just so busy all the time. And now I still feel like I'm just as busy, if not more, I do way more studying now, reading all these things, but there is a piece in knowing that I only now have to, I really try and ask God, like, give me the grace to get the things done today that need to be done to talk to people that you know, need to be talked to pray for the people who need to be prayed for and I'm going to leave the rest to you God because there's only so much I can do so there's so I work from that point and that the goals are to you know to bring people to the church who are outside of the church to keep people in the church that want to leave and to you know help people to get closer to Jesus and in terms of practically speaking I want to I want to write more someday I would love to I'd love to write books someday because I think that was, that's still my one writing goal. Yeah, now I, I'm, I, I'm with I, you. I want to be like a writer. This year, I was a little this year I'm like the first one's going to happen. It has to happen this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have to do it. I, I you know, and I, I think it's surreal. I've wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. And again, like if you told me that I was going to be, you know, being a writer, right? And I, I still feel like a fake liar saying that, but no, it's true. Every, no, that's normal. Writer. Everybody does. Well, Everybody everyone says that. that. And the fact of this, the subject that I'd be a writer who was writing, you know, the traditional Catholic and <laughs> doing that's just bizarre. Um, teenage me would not have believed that, but yeah, I, I just, I think that's the next step though, because I want to write a book and I've always wanted to. So that's, that's something I want to do. Um, I'm going to be starting a podcast soon. So that's, that's actually coming up soon. So I'll have you to, are? I am. Yeah. It's, it's been very, very hush hush. Uh, really very few people know it even exists. Um, it's going to be with a friend of mine and I think it's going to be really good. We're going to be talking about from a traditional Catholic perspective, but we're also going to get more into some of how we can apply the, you know, these teachings of the church to our problems in the world and to politics. And I'm excited about that because now I think I've, I finally got to a point of just ridiculous amounts of just full all Catholicism morning till night for a full year. I think I'm getting to the point where I'm like, okay, I can juggle a little bit of like, secular stuff and my putting my very Catholic and explicitly Catholic perspective on some of these practical things. And I'm excited about that. And just, yeah, I'd love to do more. I want to write more this year. (laughs) I want to be less sporadic and terrible. Um, and to just, yeah, get, get out there more and to raise my son. And now I could have the blessing of my little tiny Latin mass community. I want to do anything I can to help grow that. That's awesome. So um, I have to ask because I see that you have now started making scapulars and through the magic of post Oh no. <laughs> through the magic of post production, I think I'm going to throw a picture up because look, oh, I think that these look really cool and they've got <laughs> a very rustic kind of handmade quality to them. They're actually beautiful. It reminds me of sort Thank of you. like the stuff that would have come out of the Vendée, you know, during the French Revolution. Oh, um, is this maybe going to be a side business for you or is it just a hobby right now? So- I I have only made a couple of these. I, that one, full disclosure, the back looks like absolute garbage. I had to glue down part of the strings because it was all messed up. I haven't put the strings on. So the magic of show business, you just show the parts. That yeah, I just showed the front. Yeah, so nobody. But you know, I'm just thinking. It's okay, I can, I'm not an art. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not an artistic person. Not good at crafts and stuff very much. And I was like, 
and I was just shocked I could make something that looked like somewhat like what I was trying to make it look like. Like it looks like what it physically is supposed to be, I guess. And I posted it and people were saying like, Oh, like, can I buy one? And I was like, <laughs> like, I didn't expect people to want no, it's that. It's very so. unique. I think it looks really cool. You can find them on Etsy. It's just, they're like 50 bucks. And now seeing how much time they take, I can kind of see why, but I think, I don't think I could ever, I think time-wise right now, I can't even keep up the stuff I'm currently doing, let alone start a side scapular being the crazy, like, trad scapular lady. (laughs) But that said, I've really thought about maybe, you know, making some, like, spending a lot of time on them and then maybe putting, you know, putting them up for, like, you know, donations sort of thing. I think there's a story here that that we could sell for the marketing. You know, you're this reclusive (laughs) scapular maker that, you know, only only issues six scapulars a year and they're worth an enormous (laughs) amount of money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's exactly what it's going to need to be i yeah well thank you i'm inspired to to try and finish the second one i'd started um which was beautiful until i messed up the very last part of it no i don't know i have to get creative and fix that but <laughs> from friendship from making friendship bracelets to scapulars that's exactly oh that's, that's your I'm book that's your next book my next book all right let's not get ahead of ourselves all right stephanie well we're so glad to have you as a contributor to one peter five and more importantly to have you as a catholic so thank you and welcome to the big crazy family thank you so much all right thank you you've been listening to the one peter five podcast this has been a production of one peter five incorporated copyright 2018 all rights reserved If you have downloaded this podcast through iTunes, we encourage you to go there and leave us a review to help others find and enjoy our show. If you would like to support our work, go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution. This not only helps to pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening. I found Islam so erotic and cool. Erotic. <laughs> 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 oh, that is the dumbest thing I've ever Remix. said. Remix. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. I'm not even nervous at all. I shouldn't drink wine. Anyways, what was I saying? You were saying you found Islam erotic and cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is good tv i think we should keep this in honestly exotic i bet it is about islam exotic and cool <laughs>